0: Good morning, listeners. It's your host, Hannah Cater, and for this week's episode of Philosophies and Frameworks, we're going to talk about welfare states in the perspective of rule and act utilitarians. We're going to use President Bill Clinton's welfare reform policies of 1996 as a case study to measure how ethical welfare states and this reform on it is looked at by rule and act utilitarians. First, it seems fitting to introduce utilitarianism in general. Merriam-Webster defines it as a doctrine that the useful is the good and that the determining consideration of right conduct should be the useful of its uh, consequences. And more specifically, a theory that the aim of action should be the largest possible balance of pleasure over pain or the greatest happiness of the greatest number. What this means is that utilitarianism measures the morality of actions based on the good and bad results of said actions. What is morally correct to utilitarians derives from positive contribution to human beings. The overall good oh sorry, the overall goal is to increase pleasure and happiness, while of course simultaneously decreasing pain and unhappiness. So you may be asking, how does this present itself in real life? A real life example of this would be an answer to the famous trolley problem. When utilitarians are posed the question of if they should intervene to save five people and kill one, they easily choose to save those five people at the expense of one person. This is because that action would produce the most pleasure. However, the utilitarian answer to the trolley problem gets more complicated as more variations are added. Though, say you make that one person you're killing a future popular political figure, one that you know will be vital to the livelihoods of millions when they're elected in 2056. On the other hand, on the one hand, there uh, will be a great amount of immediate pleasure than pain um, for the five that survive, but on the other hand, future lives will be impacted because of the one action of intervening and um, and killing the one to save the five, pre- preventing a future life from being able to create their own pleasure for society. The two responses to this dilemma introduces us to our next topic, acts versus rule utilitarianism. The acts utilitarian would likely answer that even though your killing could be um, the person you're killing could be powerful politically, the immediate consequences of the action produces the greatest net utility. So it suggests, it's the justified response. This is because act utilitarians simply believe in the principle that they should always choose the action that will create the greatest net net utility, which is applied to individual actions. Meanwhile, rule utilitarians think more long-term and have a two-part view. This view is that firstly, they believe that specific actions are morally righteous if it conforms to a justified moral rule. Secondly, they believe that a moral rule is only justified if it is included into our moral code, which would create the most utility. To summarize, rule utilitarianism evaluates the rules and then actions by looking into whether or not said actions obey said rules. So a rule utilitarian would likely answer that intervening and saving that one person is not justified, as in the long run we know that the person you're killing will save many other lives, and also that a possible moral rule of these types of utilitarians might be that actually killing the innocent is wrong, so this specific action would go against said moral rule, making it immoral. So now that that's out of the way, let's quickly go over welfare states. Merriam-Webster defines welfare states as a a social system based on the assumption by a political state of primary responsibility for the individual and social welfare of its citizens. This concept is surprisingly fairly new. While forms of welfare have existed in some ways in the past, the first official welfare state was Imperial Germany in 1889. The chancellor at the time, Otto von Bismarck, presented the program with the goal of providing general well-being of workers to promote efficiency, which would, of course, in turn, boost Germany's economy. He also wanted to ensure that those that were retired or disabled, or as the German emperor at the time put it, disabled from work or by by age or and, and validity, received care from the state. The program essentially set a retirement age, which was 70 at the time of its founding, and made it so that those above the age of 70 received care from the state which received funding for the program from those currently employed. The employees paying for the program were already a part of the Workers' um, Compensation Program of 1884, also under Bismarck, in order to provide insurance of sorts um, for workers if they were to be injured. This is as a fun fact. Bismarck was actually socially conservative, but wanted to please the leftists of his time and implemented this. He wasn't a socialist by any means, but he was still labeled as a socialist for the rest of his life. Next, let's fast forward to 1935 in America. The country had just gone through the Great Depression and was devastated with poverty. Millions were out of jobs, children were starving, and the elderly did not have enough saved prior to the Great Depression to support themselves. So, President FDR had to think of a way to create jobs while providing aid to, as he put it, poor children and other dependent persons. So he established America's first national welfare system. Prior to the founding of the system, there were some local and state-level aid programs, but they weren't tolerable to most. For example, so shelters were purposely made to be so unpleasant that, the only de- um, that only the desperate would choose to stay there. Also, in some counties, people were given the bare necessities, but only at the cost of labor-intensive work and sometimes even dangerous work. This lack of urgency to help those in need stemmed from a nationwide and even to some extent a a worldwide stigmatization around being poor, as many believe that those that are financially unfortunate are responsible for their own failures and that it would be unjust for them to pay others who they believed were essentially putting themselves into these conditions. So now let's combine these two topics. We have utilitarianism and welfare states. We went over the difference between act and and rule utilitarianism So let's apply what the two philosophies um, go over and put it into welfare states. An act utilitarian would likely approve of welfare states, at least in theory. They would likely say that since welfare in the short term provides the most pleasure and net utility to society, it is the preferable action. More specifically, since those not on welfare would only have to pay slightly more in taxes while also bringing up the economy, as Bismarck planned, which which would also in turn help them and those on welfare would obviously receive benefits in the form of money and or insurance, this would create pleasure for both parties in some way. And in that way, um, this creates the most net utility and pleasure. It is said that welfare in itself is actually an utilitarian idea, as it will provide pleasure and net utility to those using it, while not causing as much pain to those paying for it. However, a rule utilitarian would likely differ on their approval of welfare states, both in theory and practice. This is because their, their approval may depend on a said moral rule or code that they use to justify the morality of actions. Most, More importantly, they could argue that, in the long run, welfare is not only inefficient but somewhat debilitating to recipients of it. To elaborate on that point, I think it's best to use a, spe- a specific case of welfare to show how welfare can be a net negative in the long run. To make it easy, let's go back to America's welfare. Just to refresh your memory, FDR founded the country's first national welfare system. This stayed with occasional changes made by different presidents. Now let's fast forward to 1996. Bill Clinton is president and even in his campaign, he said that he would quote unquote, end welfare as we know it. He passed welfare reform this year with the Republican Congress. This policy, was so controversial, especially amongst other Democrats, that even members of his own cabinet resigned because of it. In short, the reform ended the Federal Cash Assistance Program and the Aid to Families with Dependent Children, or the AFDC, and turned both of these programs to the states instead. Federal funding to the states for these programs were given in the form of a block grant called the Temporary Assistance to Needy Families, or the TNAF. He had two main goals for the reform. His first goal with this reform was to incentivize states to move welfare recipients into job placement programs. His second and more controversial goal was to lower single motherhoods or single mothers reliance on welfare. To achieve the latter, he also limited eligibility for welfare to 60 months or five years of a woman's lifetime. I say woman because this program was um, mostly affecting women and single mothers specifically. Now let's look at where this policy brought welfare recipients a decade later, in 2006. Overall, they saw a labor participation increase of 17% among single mothers. In addition, single mothers saw an earnings increase of eight, from 18 k to 23 k However, it's worth noting that while single mothers were employed, only some earned enough to escape poverty. What this means is that the amount of those working actually increased. To summarize, after the reform, we saw an increase in income for single mothers and a slight poverty decline. It's also worth noting, though, that researchers aren't completely certain on whether this can specifically be attributed to Clinton's 1996 reform. For clear, somewhat direct results of the reform, though, we can look at what researcher Rebecca Blank had to say. In 2006, she said, more women are now working and poor rather than non-working and poor. More women are now paying for child care out of their earnings. More women appear to be sharing more income with other adults in their lives. Now, let's see what skeptics had to say about the policy, also in 2006. Professor Lester Spence spoke with NPR to discuss what he, as a political science professor at Johns Hopkins, thought of the bill. He had three main critiques of it, the most relevant ones being that, firstly, the reform didn't fund childcare, so parents still had to go to work while their children had to basically stay at home were not at school, since parents had to work long hours, they often didn't have time to care for the children and couldn't afford childcare. And secondly, these hours put in working weren't even really for jobs that provided healthcare. So a lot of them were working these jobs, often sometimes dangerous, um, without healthcare. And so now that um, listeners know a little bit about the controversial welfare reform. Let's see what acts and rule utilitarian can say about it. I think that since in the short term, the reform was actually pretty beneficial, welfare recipients finally were able to be employed. And we can specifically see in a raise in income. So an ACT utilitarian may be in support of this, as it provided the greatest net utility and pleasure to the greatest number of people. However, because the bill didn't really move too many people into solid working class lives and did not fund childcare, so those affected were eventually somewhat stuck in Poverty in the long run, and were working without all of the benefits that they might have been able to gain in an alternative solution, a rural utilitarian might disagree with this. Um, in addition, if a rural utilitarian were to use the idea of individualism as an ideal to create a moral code around, they might concur that this policy didn't give both users and non users of welfare the freedom to decide what will be the most pleasurable for themselves or others. This is why we can likely conclude that most r- rural utilitarians would disapprove of the reform as even though the reform was initially successful in some ways in the long run, recipients were somewhat worse off and, put, and the policy put more people, especially single mothers and children, into uncomfortable situations. To end today's episode of Philosophies and Frameworks, I'm going to leave you all with the question that I decided to work this episode around. Feel free to answer this in the comments of this podcast or even tweet us at PAFP Podcast. After learning about the basics of action rule utilitarianism, along with a brief history of welfare states, do you think that welfare states can, in fact, provide the greatest good for the greatest number of people? Does your answer change once you question practicality versus theory, or when you question action versus rule utilitarianism? Let us know. That's all for today's episode. Tune in next week for a new episode of Philosophies and Frameworks.